I think the origin of some of the medical terms that we use is super interesting. I mean, if you know the entomology of some of these words, then it helps you understand what they actually mean. It's kind of neat. Take, for example, the word placenta, right? Placenta. I mean, it's been around forever, right? Well, maybe not. I mean, the first documented use of the word can be traced back to an anatomy textbook from 1638. Well, what did they call it before that? I don't know. Maybe they did call it placenta, but maybe it wasn't written down before. (laughs) That was the first time it was actually documented. Well, the word placenta actually comes from a Greek and a Latin term meaning a flat disc. The actual term was placenta uterina, which is Latin for the uterine cake. Mmm, uterine cake. Well, another weird word is circumvallate. Circumvallate, as in the circumvallate placenta. That also comes from a Greek and Latin origin from two root words. Circum, which of course means to circle, from where we get the word circle, and then valate, which actually means to surround with a tall wall or a fortress. Actually, the better translation is a rampart. So a circumvalate placenta is a placenta that's encircled by a wall or a fortress. Yeah, it's exactly what a circumvallate placenta is. And we're going to discuss that in this episode. You see, the whole idea for this came from the other day in clinic where we reviewed an ultrasound report and it said, oh, there's a circumvallate placenta noted as an incidental finding. Well, that raised the next question. Is it really an incidental finding or is it linked to some adverse issues? The answer to that question depends on two things. When you asked that, like before May of 2023, and who you asked. Yep, in this episode, we're going to cover brand new data that just got accepted for publication in May 2023. That's just last month. As point of reference, we're doing this on June the 23rd, 2023, out of the American Journal of Perinatology. The authors of this publication come from my alma mater, which I'm so proud of, which is UT Southwestern and Parkland Hospital. Some of the authors on this publication were there when I was an intern and when I was a resident. I have such admiration for those folks because after all these years, they're still committed to evidence-based practice, to lifelong learning, and to publications. I absolutely love that. So in this episode, we're going to highlight that publication, and we're going to discuss this whole issue of a circumvallate placenta. Is it really maleficent, or is it meh? I kind of feel like you have to see somebody when they go, meh, but use your best emoji and imagination to go, meh, and that's exactly what we're talking about. So is the Circumvalley Placenta Maleficent or meh? Let's get into it in this episode. Medicine moves real fast. We're here to help us all keep up the pace. This is Clinical Pearls. I know we're busy and we all kind of take things that we see all the time for granted. I mean, that's the same in our personal life as it is in our professional life, isn't it? But like the placenta, I mean, the thing delivers in third stage. You're like, nah, you kind of look at it. Yeah, it looks intact. Membranes are there. And then you kind of discard it. And maybe you send it off for some eval pathological documentation if you need to, which is always a good idea for meconium, twins, and a variety of some things. But other things, it probably doesn't help at all. But, right, we kind of take that for granted. Yeah, it's a placenta. Man, that's a weird structure. I mean, think about it. It's a temporary disposable organ that's made for a time-limited purpose. That, and that's pretty cool, right? I mean, so one of the things I like to do 
especially when we get new medical students or brand new interns, is once the delivery's done, everything's good. We kind of go off to the side. All right, mom's with baby. They're bonding. They have skin to skin and all that's going on. Uh, it's, it's to really take a look at the placenta, which is really what we're supposed to do and document that. Not only are we documenting in the absence of retained tissue, making sure that the dirty Duncan side, the maternal side, the beefy red cotyledon side is intact, but also look at the fetal surface, right? The shiny Schultz surface to make sure that the membranes are where they're supposed to be. Remember that the membranes are supposed to come off the edge of the placenta in a smooth, non-stepwise fashion, right? If there's a ring around the placenta typically seen on the fetal surface right at the edge, that's called a Ballendor placenta. But if that ring, if that ridge is smaller on the fetal surface, if that ridge, that disc is smaller than the basal plate, than the maternal side, that's what's called the circumvallate placenta. We're going to talk about the formation of the placenta in a minute, but you can see this, uh, his, I mean, grossly, you don't need to send it off for histology, although it's good to formally document, and we should do that. But that's why you look at the placenta. Is there anything missing? Is it meconium stained? Does it look funky? How many vessels are, are there? Where does the cord insert? All of those things are things that you're supposed to document with every delivery. And it's not just vaginal delivery. You're supposed to do that at C-section too. Yes, you can document and you can assess for retained products a lot easier because the uterus is open through the hysterotomy, but you still have a commitment to examine the placenta as part of the fetal structure, right? The, the, the placenta is fetal origin. So let's talk about the makeup of the placenta next. People have always asked, well, what is, what is a placenta? Is it fetal or is it maternal? The answer is, yeah, I mean, it is. Now, it's fetal-derived. It all comes from the fetal compartment. But remember that the maternal contribution is maternal blood. I mean, so it is maternal uh, donation, which is all of the uh, of the intervascular spaces are filled with maternal blood. But the origin of the structure itself, I and mean, that doesn't come from the mom, that comes from, from the developing fetus itself. The placenta is a fetal organ that's made up of its parenchyma, the chorion, the amnion, and of course, the umbilical cord. So here's how this works. Remember, after fertilization, that fertilized ovum, which is now called a zygote, then multiplies in, by cell division into a morula. That's a solid ball of cells. You all remember that from embryology? That solid ball of cells, the morula, will then develop into the embryo, which is later called a fetus after around 10 weeks, and the fetal placenta. The inner cell mass develops into the embryoblast, and the outer cell mass becomes the trophoblast. That's where the placenta comes from, the trophoblast. That morla then takes in fluid and forms the blastocyst and the trophoblast surrounding the inner cell mass and fluid. The blastocyst implants into the uterus about six days after fertilization, and that's when the trophoblast cells start to secrete human chorionic gonadotropin. All right? So remember that as soon as it implants, that trophoblast invasion then becomes the syncytial trophoblast, and it's that syncytial trophoblast that's responsible for HCG. 
Well, then there's something called the cytotrophoblast. Okay, so there's the syncytiotrophoblast, that's like the wave of invasion. And then you have the soldiers that are whacking down the trees so that the, the army can invade, all right? Well, the soldiers that are whacking down the trees are the cytotrophoblast. These cells secrete enzymes that break down the bonds in the endometrial cells, now called the, the endometrial basalis, so that the syncytiotrophoblast can advance, okay? Team effort. So the trophoblast is responsible for both the syncytiotrophoblast, which secretes HCG, and the cytotrophoblast that makes that invasion possible. All to say that reorganization of the syncytiotrophoblast as it invades the endometrial layer uh, becomes the placenta. So this is all fetal derived. I think I'll post a picture of what this looks like histologically. If you just take a look at the placenta of what a circumvallate placenta looks like. I'll, I'll post that on our Facebook page just for point of reference. But remember some key terms here when we talk about this structure, okay? This is a placental malformation. Now, not all malformations are bad, so let's just say that. So I'm kind of already spilling the beans a little bit here as to what these authors found from this May 2023 publication, but let's get some terms right, okay? So there's the decidua basalis. That's the endometrium where the placenta invades, all right? At, well, it's called a placenta once it's an organized structure where the syncytial trophoblast invades. Well, the base of that placenta is called just that. That's the basal plate. The chorionic plate comes from the chorionic membrane, and that's where the syncytial trophoblast is giving rise to the parenchyma of the placenta. I don't want to make it very complicated, but all to say, when the chorionic plate is smaller, when the circle is smaller than the basal plate, right, that's where you get a circumvallate placenta. Uh, I like to think about it as a... As a um, dish that's upside down. Do y'all get what I'm saying? Like a soup dish, not like a like a bowl, but those little fancy like dishes that you get, it's got the little indentation. Uh, that's what I think of the placenta. Now flip that upside down and you see the base, the whole basal plate is the entire plate. But the, the, the little indentation part that's now risen, that's the chorionic plate. I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, take a look at the image that I'll post on, on Facebook later. But that's how you define what a circumvallate placenta is. I'm going to give you the formal definition verbatim from, from the pathology folks. But that's how I reason that out. The placental base, which is where it invades, is larger than the chorionic plate, which is actually what gave rise to the parenchyma of the placenta. All right. So it looks like a soup bowl that's upside down where the entire plate is a basal plate. But then that little indentation that's now raised because it's upside down is a chorionic plate. All right. So I'll give you the formal definition in, in just a minute, but that's how I always think about it. And that's how you define a circumvallate placenta. So as a little quick academic clinical pearl, if you're ever asked, where does the placenta come from? Well, it comes from the baby. Hey, man, the baby comes prepared. It comes with its own lunchbox. That's the yolk sac. And then it comes with its own refrigerator. That's the placenta. Remember, it keeps it as a food source and keeps its nutrition going to the baby. Look, my analogies never make sense to anybody. They make sense in my head, all right? That's how I've always explained the yolk sac. That's the baby's lunchbox because it comes ready to go. It's its nutrition until the refrigerator gets delivered and starts packing in the food. If it doesn't make sense to you, don't send me a message. I've used that analogy for 20 years. Patients tend to like it. But let's just get back to the message. 
All right, so remember that this placental thing, this placental abnormality, can be diagnosed two ways, right? The super easy way, of course, is looking at the placenta. That's post-delivery. And that's where some of the issues have come up where adverse events have occurred and then they look at the placenta after the baby's delivered and go, aha, it's a circumvallate placenta. There you go. That's the guilty member right there. And while that is possible, it's obviously linked with huge bias because the placenta could be just there like, hey, man, I just got here. I mean, I looked this way and I'm blamed for it because of why. So that's some of the issues that have looked at adverse events retrospectively by pathological gross examination or histological confirmation of a circumvallate placenta. All right. The better way to do it to track outcomes is to really look antenatally or prenatally with ultrasound. I mean, you can find this on an ultrasound. Which brings me to my next point. When we do our ultrasounds, it's not just about looking at the placenta, hey, it's right lateral or it's uh, posterior fundal, and that's it. Position is great. We're supposed to do that, but we're all supposed to take a look at what the placenta looks like. Where's the cord insertion? Uh, is there abnormal lakes, lacunae, especially if it's uh, anterior low line or a previa? You've got to look to see is there that normal break between the placenta and the myometrum called that hypoechoic line because breaks in that line could signal abnormal attachment on, on the previa, especially in a patient with previous cesarean sections. So don't just say, yeah, the placenta, I, I saw it, it's right lateral, or it's anterior fundal, and that's it. We're supposed to take a look at its characteristics, where the cord inserts, if it's abnormally low in its implantation, take a look at for lacunae, uh, for that hypochoic line, especially in previous C-section patients. And we're supposed to look at the placental edges, because remember, even if it's not a previa, one of the definitions of a low-lying placenta is that the leading edge is within two centimeters of the os. So we're supposed to look at the edges. And this is one of the, the signs, this is one of the ultrasonographic features of a circumvallate placenta, all right? So remember that the amnion and the chorion uh, make a ring on the fetal surface, the shiny Schultz surface, that is smaller than the placental disc itself, Okay. And that's raised. So on ultrasound, one of the things that you see on cross-section, you see the placenta, and then you have these little hands that come up and kind of cup the placenta. It can be uh, more evident on one side than the other, but on cross-section, you have the flat disc, like a little UFO, and then these two little hands that pop up on either side. If you see that two little lips, you're like, oh, I think that's a circumvallate placenta. Uh, and so that's one of the markers. The other thing that you can see on a more longitudinal view, I'm sorry, more sagittal view, of the placenta, you know, more in its entire length, is you see this hyperechoic, this thick white band along the top of the placenta, because that's that ridge, right? That's the fortress, that's the rampart, that's the wall of the circumvallate placenta. So you can have some images on ultrasound uh, that are dead giveaways, all right? So the take-home message there is what do you look for when you look at the placenta? Well, position, you look for appearance, you look for cord insertion, and you look for its edges to make sure that it's a flat disc that's kind of seamless as the membranes come off on either end, and you don't have these step-offs, these little cups, these little hands that could signal circumvallate placenta.
Let's stop right here for just a minute before we give the formal uh, histology slash pathology definition of circumvallate placenta, because we've kind of alluded to that already in, in the intro and in the background and in these ultrasound images in the description of these of these images. But here's an important point, right? Let's say that we're going to find that circumvallate placenta is really not linked to any adverse issue. Okay, it really is an incidental finding. Spoiler, that's exactly what the May 2023 publication found. I'm going to get into it. I'm going to explain it. And I'm going to give you the rebuttal from the earlier stance uh, from a 2014 publication that says, oh, this is bad. I'm going to show you why these two are very different. All right. So we have one in 2014 that we're going to discuss that goes, oh, man, I, I think this is a marker of an omen of bad things to come. Uh, and then the newer data is like, no, it's not, bro. Don't, don't worry about it. It's nothing. It's incidental. We're going to discuss both of those in a minute. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So so the question is, man, it's bad to do this when you're sleep deprived and you're out of ADD meds. I'm telling you, I, I'm, it, it's a struggle. Meanwhile, I've got people... I'm looking at you. I've got I've got one member of our team on the other side of the glass who's shaking their head at me. Love it. Let's hold on a minute. Okay, hopefully some creative editing went into that last section. I kind of derailed there from it. Anyway, uh, so the question is, if this is an incidental finding, do we even have to tell the patient about it? Uh, and my answer is what I assume is the conservative answer, which is the right answer ethically, which is, yeah, of course. I mean, just because it may be a benign finding, which we're going to discuss in a minute, doesn't mean that the patient shouldn't know about it. I mean, that's part of our job as physicians, as healthcare professionals. If you're a PA, an NP, a a, a CNM, whatever, we should tell the patient, hey, look, baby looks great. We did find this kind of weird development of the placenta called a circumvallate placenta. But here's what the latest data show about it. It tends to be meh. While before we thought it was maleficent. We're going to explain all that in a minute. But of course, patients need to know that. I mean, if not, what's our job then? I mean, to write prescriptions and order labs? I mean, AI can do that. I'll be back. Talking about the entomology of words, did you know where the word doctor comes from? I think this is super cool. So doctor is two parts, uh, doceri or docer, and then the or, which is a person or belonging to, right? So doctor, doceri, and then or, doctor. But doceri or docer actually comes from the Latin, which means to teach or to instruct. So literally doctor comes from the two Latin words, meaning one who instructs or one who teaches. How cool is that? So it's our job as healthcare professionals, and I don't mean just of doctors, I mean of anybody in healthcare, is to teach the patient to be part of their medical education for their health education. So yes, patients should know that you find this, even if it turns out to be an incidental finding. The formal pathology slash obstetrical slash histology definition of circumvallate placenta is, quote, a form of extracorial placenta in which the basal plate extends past the margins of the chorionic plate, resulting in the chorion and the amnion folding over one another on the fetal surface. Well, that's exactly what we described earlier, right? So if you could think about it, it basically is the disc of the placenta with this little smaller ring on the fetal surface that's a thick band of folded placental tissue or fibrin or debris that represents the material within the folded amnion and the chorion over itself. 
the incidence of circumvallate placenta based on historical pathology studies is anywhere from 1 in 188 to 1 in 208. So not super common, but not rare either. Prior studies have linked circumvallate placenta with poor pregnancy outcomes, including antenatal bleeding, placental abruption, preterm birth, emergency cesarean, small for gestational age infants, and even stillbirth. All of those are horrible. But here's the catch. A lot of those were based on post-delivery examinations of the placenta, where somebody had to be the scapegoat. And in this case, it was a placenta. Take, for example, a publication from 2014 out of Obstetrics and Gynecology International. Of course, we'll put this reference on our reference list in our uh, podcast uh, citations online. But listen to this. Remember, this was a retrospective study that looked at circumvallate placenta and any associated perinatal complications. So the authors concluded, quote, Women with circumvallate placenta were associated with higher incidences of preterm delivery at 64%, placental abruption at 10%, emergency C-section at 45%, SGA at 39%, and antenatal or neonatal death at 9%. It was also associated with NICU admissions at 55%, and even some chronic lung disease in the newborn at 34%. So the authors concluded, quote, with circumvallate placenta, pregnancy outcomes are poor and have characteristic clinical manifestations. In women with both vaginal bleeding and preterm rupture of membranes during pregnancy, circumvallate placenta should be strongly suspected, end quote. Now, if it's strongly suspected, my first question is, why don't you just look for it with a prenatal ultrasound? I mean, this wasn't from the 1970s. I mean, this was published in 2014. And here's the big catch here. Here's how these authors did this publication. And again, I'm not trying to throw these authors under the bus at all. I'm just letting you know exactly what they did. So these authors took a look at the placenta at time of delivery. Okay, so they had an adverse outcome and then they took a look at the placenta and said, ah, circumvallate placenta. And that's not necessarily a bad way of doing it. It's just it's hard to erase that observer bias because you're kind of looking at things from reverse. And it wasn't just that 2014 publication. Others had found similar things, maybe not to the extent that that 2014 publication did, because those are pretty high percentages of some really weird, bad stuff. But others have said, yeah, maybe there's a correlation here, not even causation, just a correlation, because they've realized those limitations when they do that at post-delivery examination, all right? So maybe the better way of doing this is to evaluate the placenta prenatally and then see what happens, okay? So that's exactly what these authors from UT Southwestern and Parkland Hospital did with their publication from May 2023 in the American Journal of Perinatology. The lead author on that is Catherine Spong, who is absolutely phenomenal. She's just incredible. I have a professional professional crush on her. Uh, I don't mean that in a weird way. I just admire her. She was with the NIH. Now she's obviously a, a, a department head at UT Southwestern in, a, in the OBGYN department. Anyway, I'm just amazed by these folks. Uh, Dr. McIntyre was there when I was uh, in training. Dr. Twickler, my goodness, she taught me OB ultrasound. She's on this publication. Just just solid, fantastic. And above all, just really kind-hearted, uh, humble people. I love that. 
The title of this publication is Prenatal Ultrasound Findings of Circumvallate Placenta and Pregnancy Outcomes. So the aim of this study was to determine if the prenatal diagnosis of a circumvallate placenta was associated with these adverse pregnancy outcomes that others have reported or not. These authors took a look at pregnancies that had a singleton gestation, diagnosed prenatally with a circumvallate placenta, listen to this spread, from 2012 until 2021. That's a long time. That's a lot of placentas. That's a lot of ultrasounds. Rates of adverse pregnancy outcomes were then compared among those with prenatally diagnosed circumvallate placentas to those without this abnormality with a 4 to 1 control matched group. Pregnancies with known fetal anomalies or other placental abnormalities were obviously excluded. Just to be clear, this was not a prospective study. This was a retrospective chart review. So retrospective studies are not bad for this. My issue with the other retrospective studies that have looked on this and published adverse sequelae with this finding is that they looked at the placenta itself. So the diagnosis came from a post-delivery diagnosis, where in this study, they looked to see who had, retrospectively, who had the circumvallate placenta, and then looked to see what they had in terms of perinatal outcome. 179 pregnant patients met the inclusion criteria. These pregnancies were compared to those from a control group selected at random from pregnant women receiving prenatal care and delivering during the same study period. Pregnant patients with a prenatal diagnosis of circumvallate placenta comprised about 0.2% of all anatomic ultrasounds studied and 0.17% of all deliveries from January the 1st, 2012 through March 31st, 2021. You're like, man, it was 0.17%? Okay, so it's low, but look, we had one in our office and I'm, I know it's out there. That's why we're doing this podcast. Remember, sometimes it's that weird stuff that's kind of down there in the background in the weeds that we get kind of freaked out about because we don't see it a lot. So yes, this was not like 10% or 20%. I mean, that'd be weird. So these are low frequency, but this is something that we have to be prepared for because if we find it, remember, it's still part of our duty to educate the patient. Well, let's just cut to the chase because we don't want this podcast to keep going on indefinitely. The authors found, quote, no significant differences existed between the two groups for rates of antenatal bleeding, preterm birth, placental abruption, or need for emergent cesarean section. There were also no differences in the number of stillbirths or infants that were small for gestational age, end quote. So the authors concluded, quote, we found no significant difference in adverse pregnancy outcomes between pregnant women with and without this prenatal diagnosed circumvallate placenta. So that's obviously really good news. The authors go on to state, quote, Given overall good prognosis, prenatal diagnosis of circumvallate placenta may not warrant additional surveillance during pregnancy. Oh, I know what you're thinking already. Really? It's one study and you're super biased because it's from your academic institution where you trained. Uh, we need more data. Hey, I get it. That's okay. I can take it. That's fair. But here's how the value of this. Again, this was one of the few studies that actually looked retrospectively starting at the antenatal ultrasound and then tracking outcomes, not starting with the placenta and then going backwards. Does that make sense? Plus, even though this was a really well done, very large study, they actually weren't the first one to say this. 
back in January of 2018 in the supplement of the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, another group of fantastic authors who then were at WashU. They've now fled the coop and they're at other institutions, including other areas here in Texas. Um, but they published very similar findings. This was abstract number 432 from one of the MFM meetings. And the title of this abstract was Clinical Significance of Circumbellate Placenta. Exactly what we're talking about here. These authors actually did it first. They kind of took a look at this in the exact same methods that the Southwestern authors did for the May 2023 publication. This was a retrospective cohort of their consecutive pregnant women with singleton, non-anomalous pregnancies that underwent routine obstetric ultrasound, usually around the second trimester from their institution, but it was a shorter time span. It was from 2010 to 2014. And as we did with the previous publication that we highlighted, let's just cut to the chase. Yep, nothing happened. They concluded there was no real difference here in adverse outcomes. It didn't really do anything. So their conclusion was, quote, antenatally diagnosed circumvallate placenta was not associated with an increased risk of SGA at birth or other adverse obstetric or neonatal outcomes. They go on to say, this suggests that antenatal diagnosis of circumvallate placenta may be benign and women may be managed with routine obstetric care, end quote. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered circumvallate placenta and the newest data that just came out last month, May of 2023, in the American Journal of Perinatology. That's what we're doing here, right? Medicine moves fast, and we're just trying to keep pace with that change. And that's what we're doing here at Clinical Pearls. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.